Well, good morning, church family. I hope that wherever you are sitting in your living room or wherever you are at home watching this, that uh, despite everything that's going on in our lives in the world with, with COVID-19, that you're seeing God's new mercies this morning, uh, that his faithfulness has been on display in your life. And if you're watching this, you're not a part of our church family, we just are glad that you join us and pray that this message would encourage your heart, point you to Jesus during these days. And today we're in 2 Kings. So we've been going through a Bible series as a church this year. Uh, and I'm so thankful. It seems like every week when we come to the text, it's just what we need for this season we're in. And 2 Kings meets us right where we are as well. Uh, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings, they really highlight the reign of the first three kings in Israel, Saul and David and Solomon. And we see in 1 Kings through the first half that, that Israel's doing well. They prosper under Solomon's reign. He's following God for the majority of his reign, and Israel's blessed because of that. But then after Solomon dies, there begins this steady decline in 1 Kings. And then once you get to 2 Kings, it's just a fall, uh, just kind of right off the mountain. This king after king and ruler after ruler, for the majority, uh, don't follow God who turn their hearts from him, pursue other things. And it's, it's a text and a, a book of the Bible where we see despair and we see anxiety and we see uncertainty and we see crisis and we see famine and we see sickness and we see death and ultimately we see exile. And it's just a dark time in Israel's history. It, it's kind of the same length almost as the judges, just a few hundred years of this kind of steady decline and fall. But in the middle of 2 Kings, uh, we see hope. And 2 Kings exists for hope. It was written not just to be a, a history for the people of God to help us know what happened during this period of time, but to point us to see that God is still God. God is still working. God still has a purpose, and he wants to call his people back. He wants to cause their hearts to cling to him and, and turn to him. And, and that's our big truth for this morning. Uh, God wants wholehearted devotion. I'll say it again, God wants wholehearted devotion. And all through 2 Kings, we see individual after individual, there's over 29, or there's 29 rulers in 2 Kings, and the majority of them, they don't give God wholehearted devotion. But within those kings, we see a few who do. And this morning, we're gonna look at three of those. And one of those is Josiah. And you can just hear in this description of his life of what God wants for us and see our big truth in it. It says this, And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book and all the people joined in this covenant. And then later on, this is what it says of Josiah. Before him there was no king like him who turns the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. And so we see in, in Josiah's life this, this thing that's held up and it's that God wants wholehearted devotion. He wants us to pursue him with all of our heart. And Josiah and Hezekiah and, and Joash, they, they are stood up in 2 Kings in contrast against the other rulers and other kings. And it's a call to the people reading this book, to you and to me, to say that God wants your heart. 
God wants my heart. And oftentimes he uses difficulty and, and hard circumstances and pain to draw our hearts back to him as his children. I was thinking about my own family this past summer. We got to go to the beach and take our kids and they love playing in the sand and all of them love the ocean except for Trip. Trip's our smallest one. And so I did what any good father would do. I picked him up and carried him out kicking and screaming into the water saying the whole time, I don't wanna go, I don't wanna go, I don't wanna go. Because again, that's what good dads do. And when we got out into the ocean and were there, he did not want to be there. Everything in him wanted to be back into, on the safety of the sand and the seashore, uh, but he was out there. And what he didn't do in that moment is he didn't push away from me and try to swim back to the shore. He couldn't do that. He's too small, he doesn't know how to swim. So what he did in the middle of the ocean was he grabbed hold of me as hard as he could and clung on as tight as he could. Like the, the desperate circumstance and situation that he was in helped him see his dependence and his need to hold fast to me. And even though I was the author of his pain, the author of his insecurity, the author of his circumstance, I was the cause of it, he held on tight because he knew that I was the only one who could save him and help him in that moment. And God does this in our lives. He brings difficulty into the lives of Christians, of Jesus followers, to refine us, to draw our hearts back to him. And for some, if you're watching this this morning and maybe you're not a Jesus follower, he does that to draw you to himself. And so this morning, we're gonna see as we walk through some of these stories in 2 Kings, what it looks like for us to be wholehearted in our devotion to God. So the question that you're probably asking, and I think the text calls us to ask this morning, is what does it look like for a heart to be wholly devoted to God? How, how do we do this? What, what does it take for that to happen? And the way I wanna answer that is through some big ideas that we see played out in the lives of the three kings I mentioned, uh, Joash and Hezekiah and Josiah. But before I do, I just wanna uh, make two important notes. One, when we talk about loving God with our whole heart, it's important to know that in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, the heart is not just the emotions. So we're not just talking about feelings toward God, but we're talking about our mind, our thoughts, our, our desires, our affections, our longing, our, our volition. All those things are encapsulated in the heart, so it's the full person longing to follow God. Secondly, when we talk about wholehearted devotion, it's important to say that we're not talking about perfection. Pursuing God with a whole heart doesn't mean pursuing God perfectly. No one can do that. And even the lives of these kings who followed God and who were honored for following God, they weren't perfect. And I just wanna encourage you in that. We're not talking about perfection, but we are talking about pursuit. Uh, and a wholehearted devotion to God is someone who's pursuing God more and more in every area of our lives. So how do we do that? That leads us to our big ideas. And the first big idea is this. A wholly devoted heart intimately knows God's grace. Let me say it again. A wholly devoted heart intimately knows God's grace. And we can see that in all these kings' lives, the three I mentioned, but we can especially see that in, in Joash's life in 2 Kings chapter 12. And I just want to read the first two verses that talk about him to us this morning. Uh, it says, Joash was seven years old when he began to reign. And in the seventh year of Jehu, Joash began to reign. He reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibi of Beersheba. And Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days. 
because Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Now, I know that just seems like a very short introductory statement, but it's really important. In fact, that first sentence that said he was seven years old when he began to reign is significant. And I don't have the time to read all of the story to you. I would encourage you to go back and read it if you haven't this week from chapter 11. But the backstory is that when Jehoash is seven years old, or when he was born, um, his father was killed, the king, and his father's wife uh, took over the throne. She murdered all of the king's children, and she tried to kill Joash, but by God's grace, he was saved and hidden in the temple. And so for the first seven years of his life, he was raised in hiding in the temple until the priest took him out and through this whole means made him king uh, over the land. And the reason why that's important and what that has to do with God's grace is that Joash's desire to follow God in his reign was marked by God's saving grace in his life. If God hadn't saved his life, Joash wouldn't have survived. And so I, I think that leads to a really important application for us when we talk about wholehearted devotion to God, which is this. Devotion to God doesn't start with our pursuit of God it starts with God's pursuit of us. Like, like this moment in Joash's life shapes the rest of his reign, that God would save him, that God would protect him, and God would place this priest in his life to teach him his word. And it says that he followed God, the Lord is God, and did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all of his days. And so you see, if we're gonna follow God with wholehearted devotion, it doesn't begin with our initiative, it begins with God's initiative. And that's a good thing. God is the initiator of grace. He's the one who pursues us. Joash didn't do anything special that would make God save his life or deserve to have God save his life. Uh, And the same thing's true. We can't earn God's grace. Grace is a gift. And so if we're going to follow God with a whole heart, it begins with intimately knowing God's grace, undeserved uh, work in our lives. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're a Jesus follower this morning who's, who's watching this, don't forget what God has done in your life. Don't, don't forget where God saved you from. Don't forget God's work in drawing you to himself. Celebrate it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Remember his grace in your life. Even today, even in the midst of the trials and the difficulties that you might be facing among your family, God has shown himself good. He's shown his grace on your life. And maybe for some of you, you're watching this, you're like, I've never experienced grace like that. I would encourage you, even now, you can just stop the video and just cry out to God and say, Lord, I want to experience your grace. I want to be saved like Joe Ash was saved. I want you to do that in my life. I want you to rescue me. I need you more than I need anything else right now. Please save me. Please show me your grace. Grace and the experience of grace marks and, and initiates a devotion to God. And another just really practical application we see from Joash's life is this priest, Jehoiada. In fact, uh, the story is much about him as it is Joash the king. And again, it says in in verse 2 that it was because of Jehoiada the priest instructed him. So one aspect of God's grace that comes into our lives is through other people. And so a practical application of that is God wants to use you, if you're a Jesus follower, a Christian, to be an instrument of grace in the lives of others. Joash was who he was because of God's 
intervening grace in his life to save him, but also his intervening life to bring Jehoiada the priest to instruct him in the law of the Lord. And during this time when we're going through the coronavirus and we're stuck at home, I just wanna encourage you and challenge you, lean into investing in the lives of others. A really practical application is this, for a lot of us, the most significant and important thing, the accomplishment of your life or my life will not be something we do, but will be someone we invest in. So parents, lean into pouring in the gospel to the lives of your kids. Life group leaders, don't lean out during this time. Lean into investing in people. Study group leaders, lean into teaching God's word. Grandparents, lean into your children and your grandchildren. All of us, if we're a Christian, we should have people in our lives that we can disciple and invest in and point to God. And a whole nation is changed because Jehoiada the priest does that in Joash's life. May that be true of you, may that be true of me. A wholly devoted heart intimately knows God's grace. Do you know God's grace? Have you experienced God's grace? Do you remember God's grace? Remember that, call that to mind, and let that be a hope that drives you in these days. A second big idea for how we live a life of wholehearted devotion to God is this. A wholly devoted heart fights to be undivided. I'll say it again, a wholly devoted heart fights to be undivided. And we see this in Hezekiah's life uh, in 2 Kings chapter 18. If you can read along with me. In the third year of Hosea, son of Eliah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. Listen to this, verse 4. He removed the high places, broke the pillars, cut down the astroth. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord had commanded Moses. And so we see in Hezekiah this heart that is undivided or that fights to be undivided. And this is part of what it looks like to be wholly devoted to God. Again, it's not perfect pursuit, but it is pursuit and it is a fight to be undivided in our loyalty. And so Hezekiah in his reigns, he follows God. He follows God with his whole heart. He doesn't turn to the right or left. It says he held fast to the Lord as God. And the way he did that was by removing all the false idols, all the false gods from the land, including good things like the serpent that Moses had made in the wilderness that was so supposed to be a sign that allowed the people to turn back to God and to be healed from the snake bites they had received had now become an idol, had become a snare to them. Hezekiah removed all those things so that the people would not follow the false gods, including himself, but would pursue the one true God. And the same is true for you and for me. During these days of crisis, during these days when we're walking through COVID-19, we want to be wholly devoted to God by fighting to be undivided in our attention and our affection to Him. And I think there's some practical points of application that, that are important for us when we talk about having an undivided heart or fighting to be undivided. Uh, the first one is that good things can become God things. 
So again, this, this snake was a good thing. It had been given to help God's people, but had now become an idol, a snare to God's people. And the thing, thing becomes true for you and for me if we're not careful. The good gifts that God brings into our life, our job, our, our family, relationships, friendships, they become idols to us. They become saviors. They become functional saviors, things we put our hope in instead of God. And so I think this is a warning to us to be careful to not allow good things in our lives to uh, be the thing that we put our hope in, to be the thing that we rest and try to find our joy and happiness in. A second application is we see in Hezekiah's life and in his leadership uh, a call to us that we must ruthlessly eliminate anything from our lives that is a distraction to following God. And we see the way that he tore all these things down. He destroyed all these different idols. Well, the same thing for you and for me. If, if we're going to follow God and be undivided in the way that we follow him. We have to eliminate the things from our lives that, that potentially distract us or lead us towards sin. And those things aren't always bad things. Uh, and that might look different for you than it looks for me. Uh, but Jesus said it this way, if something causes your hand to sin, he didn't say go get a pedicure or a manicure. Uh, he said, cut it off, remove it. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And the same thing for us. We want to remove anything and everything from our lives that could draw our hearts away from following Jesus. And this is important for you. It's important for me. And this is what we see that Hezekiah did. And as you read through the book of 2 Kings, one of the things that you'll notice is that these kings who didn't follow God, these kings who were evil, these kings who led the people astray, they didn't tell the people to stop worshiping Yahweh. They didn't destroy the temple the Yahweh. Instead, what they did is they supplemented worship of the one true God with other gods who could come meet those needs. Hezekiah removed all those different things from the land so that the people wouldn't draw their hearts away from the one true God. We want to be the same thing, undivided in our pursuit. So a wholly devoted heart, it begins with a knowledge of God's grace, an intimate experience of God's grace, God stepping into our lives, and we live out of that throughout the course of our, our Christian lives. Secondly, a wholly devoted heart, it fights to be undivided. It fights, it's a pursuit of holiness. But the third big idea, and we see this also in Hezekiah's life, is that a wholly devoted heart pursues God's glory. A holy, devoted heart pursues God's glory. And later on in the story of Hezekiah, we see that the nation of Judah is under attack from Assyria. The superpowers come to destroy it, and, and the leader of the army mocks Hezekiah and mocks the living God and says, don't put your hope in God. He can't save you. No one can deliver you from my hand. He sends this letter to Hezekiah. And so Hezekiah, he, he um, gets in sackcloth and ashes and repentance, but he takes this letter to the temple. He takes it to God and he prays to God. And I want us to look at his prayer. And I want you to see the intent of his prayer because I think it guides our lives as well. And this is what he prays. 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. 
Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria has laid waste the nations and their lands. They've cast their gods in the fire, for they were not gods. But the work of man's hands, wood and stone, therefore they were destroyed. In verse 19, I love this. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand. And listen to the purpose, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Hezekiah prays, Lord, save us, but not just for us, not just for me. Save us so that all the kingdoms of the earth would know that you are God alone. A heart that is wholly devoted pursues the glory of God. And so really practically for you and for me, and I think this is important because Hezekiah was facing crisis. He was facing unknowns. He didn't know if God would save. He didn't know what would happen. In fact, the God he was worshiping and he destroyed all the idols. He had been obedient, had allowed this catastrophe to come on the nation. But Hezekiah takes his pursuit to the God who is the one true God, which is a, a good thing for you and I to remember in these days of difficulty and uncertainty to take our request to the God who's sovereign and in control. And instead of just asking for himself or trying to work something out, he prays and asks that God would be glorified. Uh, really practically, pursuing God's glory sometimes will go against what we perceive as being for our good. And we know that God's glory is always for the good of those who are in Christ Jesus. Every time we fight for God's glory, it's also for our good. But sometimes when we pursue God's glory, it's going to be perceived as not being the best thing for us but we wanna put God's glory first. So really practically in these days, that might mean being generous in a time where we don't know if we're gonna have a paycheck next week, but doing it so that God would be glorified. In these days, that might mean serving a neighbor, serving a coworker, serving a family member who potentially could get you sick, but doing it for the glory of God. And I'm not saying that we should be unwise or anything like that. I'm just saying that living for God's glory puts ourselves at risk. But pursuing God's glory is more important and living our lives to make much of him is the most important thing we can give our lives to. And so are we more devoted to God's glory or are we more devoted to our perceived good? And I just pray for you and for me that in these days we would be the church who lives for God's glory over our perceived good, over the things that might seem to help us the most. So this leads us to our last big idea this morning. Uh, which is this, a wholly devoted heart embraces radical repentance. A wholly devoted heart embraces radical repentance. So a wholly devoted heart begins with an intimate knowledge of God's grace. It knows God's grace intimately. It flows out of God's act in our life. Uh, secondly, a wholly devoted heart is going to fight to be undivided. So we're going to remove the things from our lives that could pull us away from God. You know, thirdly, a wholly devoted heart, it, it pursues God's glory. So above our own good, it pursues God's glory. Then lastly, we see that a wholly devoted heart embraces radical repentance. And I just want to end where we began with Josiah. And I would encourage you, if you've not been reading with us, to go back and read the story of Josiah. And without taking the time just to read the whole thing, what we see in the story of jo Josiah is that he becomes king at eight years old. Again, Jack, my, my oldest son, he's eight, getting ready to turn nine. I can't imagine an eight-year-old being the ruler of a nation. That doesn't sound like a good idea to me. And I'm sure he had help, but, but that's what happens. At eight years old, he becomes the king. 
And between uh, reading 2 Kings and the account in 2 Chronicles, we see that at age 16, Josiah begins to love and follow and pursue God of all his heart as a teenager. By age 20, um, he is purging Jerusalem and Judea of all the idols. So he's doing what Hezekiah did. He's removing, tearing down altars. And then at 26, he starts rebuilding the temple. And so I just want to stop right there for a second and, and speak to all the children who are watching this and the teenagers and just say, you're not too young for God to use you. God wants to use you now. God wants you to be wholly devoted to him now. Parents, if they're not in the room now, you want to bring them in for these moments where we open God's word together. God can use and wants to use them for his glory and for his purposes. And so as we read through the story of Josiah, what we see is they begin rebuilding the temple. They discover the book of the law. So apparently it's been lost for a long period of time. And they read the book of the law before Josiah. And we see Josiah's response uh, to hearing the law of the Lord being read in verse 11 of chapter 22. And it says this, When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And he commanded Hilkiah the priest and Achim the son of Shaphan and Achor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Isaiah the king's servant saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that's kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. And if you jump down to verse 19, God the Lord is speaking uh, to Josiah. It says, Because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and occurrence, and you have torn your clothes and wept for me, I have heard you, declares the Lord. And so what we see in this moment is that Josiah radically repents. He repents on behalf of himself. He repents on behalf of the nation. And from this point through the rest of the story, he leads the country in an act of repentance. And so practically for us in these days, I think one of the things that God's wanting to do in your heart and in my heart, the heart of this church, the heart of God followers, Jesus followers in our nation and around the world is to call us to radical repentance. And the reason I use that word radical is as you read through the rest of the story, he goes to great lengths to return the people to right worship. It's not just regret. It's not just remorse. It's not just guilt. They change everything so that they can follow God. And I think God wants to do this in your life and my life during these days. He wants us to turn and follow him with our all. And I would encourage you just to read through the story of what it looks like to radically repent in Josiah's life. But that's why we see that verse we read at the beginning that Josiah loved God with all his heart and all his soul and all his might because he turned the nation and he turned himself back to God. And so I just wanna give you some marks of radical repentance that we see in Josiah's life. What does it look like to radically repent? Here's a few things. First is humility. Humility humbled himself. We see that in verse 19 brokenness over sin. We see that in verses 11 and 19. He tore his clothes. He grieved his sin. He was broken over his sin. Repentance is a brokenness over our sin. Third, he, he publicly confessed. In, in verses 12 through 13 and then chapters 23, 1 through 3, he calls people and he calls the nation into this public confession. 
And when we repent, it's not just a private thing, it's a public thing. And I think that's something that we oftentimes don't do uh, because we're embarrassed and we don't want to bring people into it. But repentance is bigger than just a private moment. It's, it's confessing our sin uh, before God and before others. Fourthly, he recenters himself and the nation on God's word. So he has the law read out loud to the people and then calls the people to obey God's law. And when we repent, we don't just feel bad about our sin, but we recenter our lives around this word, the word of God. We fix our eyes on it and live in it in obedience. Fourthly, they remove false worship from the land. So they begin tearing down all these idols and altars. And not only do they tear them down, but they defile them. So they tear the altars down, then they go get bones, and they throw dead bones on top of the altars so that no one will go back and reuse them again because it defiles the worship that's there. So again, just not just moving it out of the way, but totally decimating it. And then the last thing, that the last mark that we see that Josiah does is he restores right worship. So they celebrate the Passover. They return to the feast. They return to the things, the rhythms that God had placed for the children of Israel to follow. So radical repentance is not just grieving sin or feeling guilty over sin, but it's turning from sin and it's following God with all that we are. And this is what I'm praying happens for you. This is what I'm praying happens for me. And in fact, Josiah's reign is so important as we head into the books of the prophets in the future. Uh, we'll see that even Daniel and his friends who we read about, they would have been alive and part of this reform and this reign. It didn't just shape Josiah and, and the people who were there. It shaped the generations to come so that faithful worship could follow. So in the middle of 2 Kings, amongst all the disaster and the despair, we see hope. We see God pulling out these men and creating this picture of what it looks like to be fully devoted in our worship and fully devoted in our heart to him. And I'm praying that God would do that to you and through you and in your family and in my family. And the last thing I just want to say just in conclusion is when we talk about being wholly devoted to God, these men weren't perfect, but they all these kings, they point to a true and better king a true and better king who brings grace to God's people, a true and better king who is undivided and who one day not only destroyed the power of sin, but one day to come will make us undivided in our devotion as Jesus' followers and we get to be with him one day. He, he is the one who lived for God's glory, who in the garden said, not my will but yours be done. And he is the one who makes radical repentance possible. He's the one who allows us to turn to God and places our, his spirit in us so that we can live for God. So I just want to encourage you in conclusion, turn to God, turn your heart to him, ask that he would do these things in you, that you would be wholly devoted to God. If you don't know God, ask that he would save you, that he would rescue you. And if you are a Jesus follower, I just want to encourage you, believer, remember grace this week, what God has done for you. Fight to be undivided. Fight to remove the things from your life. Ask God to help you know what needs to be taken out of the way. Pursue God's glory above your own perceived good. And lastly, embrace repentance. Choose to repent of your sin and turn to God. May this be true of you and be true of me. Let me pray 
for you this morning. Father God, we love you and we need you. We thank you for these stories and these stories all point to your story and are all made possible through Jesus. Help us to be a people who love you with our whole hearts, who are devoted to you with our all. And may that happen through the power of the Holy Spirit and because of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.